0: Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. The text for the sermon are the last two verses of the chapter. Therefore, And the therefore is built on chapter 1, where Jesus is shown to be the one that's exalted above the angels and enthroned in glory. Therefore, says chapter 2, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, and now the first him there is God, it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he, and now the he is Jesus, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he, Jesus, Is not ashamed to call them brethren and now in verses 12 and 13 we will have proof from the Old Testament that Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers verse 12 saying I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee and again I will put my trust in him. And the point there is that as we must trust in God, so Jesus trusted in God. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And now the text for the sermon of the next two verses Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are a couple of things on the translation here, while you have your Bible out. In verse 17, when it says to make reconciliation, the word reconciliation is nor- nor ordinarily translated propitiation, a kind of payment made of a debt. And then the word succor in verse 18 we probably know what that means, but the children don't. The sucker means to help. It means to help. So that's the text for the sermon, verses 17 and 18. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 2 of Hebrews is part of something that magnifies the greatness of Jesus Christ as the most excellent mediator of God's covenant the excellent exalted mediator that's why I pointed out in chapter 1 it compares Jesus to angels and look how how high angels are but the sun is far higher than the angels sitting down at God's right hand the rest of the book will say look he's better than Joshua he's higher than Aaron, he's higher than Moses, all those Old Testament heroes of faith, so to speak, yet Jesus is exalted higher. He is the mediator of a new and better covenant. That covenant is in fact established by Jesus Christ with God's chosen people. He is, as we read, the captain of our salvation He is the one who sanctifies His people. He could do this because He is one with them. He is one with them. The Old Testament spoke of it already as we pointed out. He calls us His brethren, brothers in a family. That's what we are to Jesus. Since the children of God are flesh and blood, He is took of that flesh and blood. He did not take on himself the nature of an angel, but he took on, says the context here in in this chapter, he took on himself the nature of Abraham, of the Jews, so that he could deliver, says verse 15, deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The point is, he does all of this as a high priest. A high priest is a mediator who stands before God and man. We'll show, see this more in the sermon. But in all things, says the text, it was necessary for him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Those two qualifications. Only as a merciful and faithful high priest could he possibly accomplish the reconciliation of his people back to God. With that propitiation, that payment that he would make. But above all things, it is necessary that he be a merciful high priest. A merciful high priest. And for him truly to be a merciful high priest, as we'll see more in the sermon, he must be like his brethren. He must be one with his people in order to be truly merciful to them. And the text says that he was like us, even to the point that he suffered. He suffered being tempted as we are suffered, as we suffer Every day with temptations, so Jesus suffered with temptation, and that is part of what God had in mind—that Jesus would be then truly a merciful and faithful High Priest. Let's examine the text under that theme—a mercy, our merciful and faithful High Priest. Well, notice first of all the requirements. Secondly, the preparation, and thirdly, the blessing. When we talk about the requirements of Christ as a high priest, there are two different aspects. First of all, there are the requirements for what he had to be. He had to be merciful and faithful. On the other hand, there are the requirements of what he had to do. And what he had to do was to make a propitiation for our sins. Both of those are included now in the first point of the sermon. What are the requirements for Jesus? First of all, he must be merciful and faithful. To understand that, we need to go back to the Old Testament and consider the position of the high priest. As we said, The high priest stands between God and the people on the one hand he represents God to the people speaking in the name of God but on the other hand he represents the people to God he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to God he would pray on behalf of the people to God standing between the sinful people and this holy God The manner of the priest doing this, this work for the people toward God, could not be done in some cold, impersonal way. Being the high priest was not, so to speak, just a job. He must have a heart for the people. He must understand them and bring their needs before God And that's why he must be merciful. Mercy has two aspects to it. In the first place, mercy is pity or sympathy. And the word sympathy literally means to suffer with, to suffer with. If a man is merciful, that is, if he is a man that has pity, then suffering makes him to feel pain and sorrow. Suffering does not leave him cold and unmoved. Rather, the sight of pain and sorrow in someone whom he loves is something that makes him to feel that. He is touched by it. In a certain sense, he is suffering with the person who is in misery Psalm 103 verse 13 describes it best as a father pitieth his children so the Lord pitieth them that fear him a father pities his children a father's heart goes out to his son lying on a bed of affliction It brings tears to his eyes. He longs to take the pain away from his son, to put it on himself, if at all possible. He suffers with his son. That's pity. That's one aspect of mercy. The other aspect of mercy is activity, often described as kindness, when blind Bartimaeus cried out, Jesus, thou son of Nazareth, have mercy on me. He was not merely asking Jesus to have some pity. He wanted something more. He wanted Jesus to help him out of his misery. Have mercy on me. And that's what Jesus did. He healed blind Bartimaeus. He had mercy on him and he did something. Mercy involves not only feeling something pity but it is doing something it is lifting someone up out of their suffering their misery their distress trying to remove the pain and whatever is causing the trouble that's that's mercy lifting them up in kindness pity and kindness the high priest must be merciful He must also be faithful. Again, go back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament priest had an office. And in that office there were responsibilities. He must fulfill those responsibilities. The daily sacrifices. The keeping the oil in the lamp so that the light burns. The incense. All the things that the high priest was required to do. He must be faithful in his office. What a horrible thing when a man was unfaithful. The sons of Aaron, two of them, Nadab and Abihu, were put to death. God killed them because they were unfaithful in their office. A high priest must be faithful. One who is faithful is trustworthy. You give him a task and you know he will do it. You give him something, one of your possessions, and you know he will treat it right and he will give it back. He is trustworthy. He's faithful. The text says specifically that he must be faithful in the things pertaining to God. Literally the things toward God. He would do his work always on behalf of the people, but he was facing God. He was doing them toward God, whether it was offering the sacrifices, bringing the incense within the temple, whatever he was doing, it was the spiritual things toward God that he must be faithful in his work. Christ must fulfill that. He must be merciful, and he must be faithful in his office. Now, there's two different requirements given here. Is there a relationship between being merciful and faithful? Is one more important than the other? As such, there is a reason why in the text, merciful is first. That is on the foreground. The the rest of the verse, the text emphasizes that. The mercy of the high priest. That's the first requirement. Mercy flows out of love. The love that a high priest has for the people enables him to show mercy. If you do not love someone, you really cannot be merciful toward them. You really don't care about them. But it's love that is the source of this mercy that the high priest must have. So only a merciful high priest can possibly be faithful. The text emphasizes that he must actually literally it's become a merciful and faithful high priest and it wasn't as if Jesus was not that but he had to become that but the point is that Jesus came into this world in human flesh to reveal the mercy and the faithfulness of God and so as he came into this world and took on the office of high priest that was his duty to show the people the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God in all his work, he would demonstrate that mercy and faithfulness. So the requirements of what he had to be merciful and faithful. What he had to do according to this text is make Reconciliation for the sins of the people. Reconciliation, I said earlier, is normally translated in the, in the Bible, propitiation. Propitiation. And a propitiation is a payment. A payment that covers the debt. Now, the children had a beautiful program Friday. And the kindergartners through second graders sang about the suffering of Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. The suffering of Jesus was a propitiation, a payment for sin. The Old Testament priest did this in a picture kind of way. Every year, once a year on the great day of atonement, the high priest would take blood from the sacrifice of the goats and go into the most holy place and there he would sprinkle the blood from that sacrifice on the mercy seat. The mercy seat. The word mercy seat is different from the ark. The ark is one thing. The mercy seat is the cover and here's another interesting point that in the New Testament that word literally is propitiation seat it's the place of propitiation it's where the blood would be sprinkled as a covering for the sins of the people that covering is a covering for the sins of the people But it's not a covering in the sense that, well, I've got a big mess here and so I'm just going to throw a blanket over the top so that it's covered up and I can't see it anymore. That's not the idea of covering. It's rather covering in the sense that it covers the damage. It pays for the debt as insurance pays for your medical bills It covers them. And if you are fully covered, you may be in the hospital for days, but when you walk out of the hospital, you owe nothing. Your debt is paid. It's been covered by your insurance. Well, the blood of the sacrifice covered the debt of the people of God. It paid for it. That's the picture of the Old Testament. They sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, the place where the people would find mercy with the blood of the goats that covered in a typical way it wasn't the final covering that's in the blood of Jesus of course but the justice of God was satisfied the wrath was removed a propitiation was made for the sins of the people now Christ is the reality of all this He is ordained of God to make the true covering, payment for sin. His suffering on the cross would be the means to accomplish this. God ordained it. The mediator of the covenant, the one that stood between God and man, had to be a merciful and faithful high priest to make a sacrifice, a propitiation for the sins of the people. This is what Christ came to do. To die on the cross. To shed His own blood. To take the curse of God upon Him. To take the guilt of our sins upon Himself and make a payment in willing obedience. This is atoning blood. It's blood that covers sin. Whoever is covered by this blood owes nothing. There is no debt left on his account so obviously it's pretty important who are covered by this blood or to put it differently for whom did Jesus die for whom did he die and the answer of the text is for the sins of the people the people there's a certain group of people that are called the people that's in harmony with the whole figure of a high priest it points to a, a definite atonement a limited atonement particular the atonement is not for all it is for the people a particular people known in advance Aaron sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat for whom? For Israel. He did not sprinkle the blood in the mercy seat for Edom or the Philistines. No, it was for God's people, His chosen people, Israel, that the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. It was their sin that was covered. Not the sins of every person who lived on the earth at that time. So it is with Christ. Who are the people for whom Jesus shed his blood? They are the people he identified himself, his brethren. The people that God had given him, verse 13, given him in eternity and said, you will go and shed your blood for these people, a particular people, for whom he was the high priest. Now do you see why he had to be a merciful and faithful high priest in order to make this propitiation? He had to be that? Think about it. A propitiation was demanded and he had to be faithful God laid down certain requirements the Old Testament scriptures are full of things that the mediator had to do And many times the gospel was, would say he did this in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled so Jesus had to fulfill every single prophecy he had to be faithful he had to be faithful in the whole of his life. That is to say, sinless. Even one sin on Jesus' part would have meant he could not offer a propitiation for other people. He would have his own guilt to deal with. So he had to be absolutely faithful in the whole of his life. But he also had to be merciful. He had to see his brethren in distress and show mercy. He could not with cold indifference turn away from the suffering of his people and say, I don't have any time for you. I don't care about you. What a horrible thing. That's what the priests of his day were like. You think of Annas and Caiaphas. There was no mercy in their heart. But there was in Jesus. And he showed that so many times. You think of how Jesus would wear himself so weary that he would just hope for a little bit of time for a rest at night and someone knocked on the door and they opened the door and there was this whole crowd of people sick people and he says and he had compassion on them mercy and he went out and he healed them he was a merciful high priest If he were not a merciful high priest, he could not possibly lay down his life for them. Now think about it again. If he did not love them, how could he lay down his life for them? He laid down his life for people that rejected him. He laid down his life for people that would deny him with cursing and swearing. He laid down his life even for some who were Actively involved in the crucifixion. And, all, and, and for us, most of us would have said, Well, if that's the way you're going to treat me, I'm not going to die for you. But that's not the way Jesus reacted. In fact, his love and his mercy for his people said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was merciful to the end. And faithful. Those are the requirements for a high priest. But to do that, he had to be made like his brethren. And now we look at the preparation. How did God prepare him for being this merciful and faithful high priest? By making Christ to be like his brethren. The, the text emphasizes that in verse 17 when it says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him. I can't emphasize enough the strength of that word. It is necessary. It, he was under a debt to become like his brethren. Absolutely necessary. That's the idea of behooved him. He had to be like them he had to take on the flesh and blood of the children Abraham's seed not the ch- not the nature of angels not of some special kind of human nature but the nature of the Jews a real human nature flesh and blood with a real human mind a real human will a real human emotions And add to that, he had to be like them, like them. Jesus was not born of some sinless woman, so that he was very different from us that way. It wasn't that he had a nature that was like Adam's before the fall, that didn't have the effects of of diseases and troubles in his body. No, he had... A nature that was just like yours and just like mine. All of the things that we are subject to, that we experience, He experienced with only one difference. He had no sin. He had no sin. But in other ways, every other way, He was just as we are. Why was this necessary? Why did it behoove Him to be made like unto His brethren? two things in the first place he had to be one with them he had to be one with them now there's, there's a bit more to that but let's, let's examine that he had to be one with his brethren organically one connected to them by the same blood the same flesh that we have only then could he make a propitiatory sacrifice Because the same human nature, body, soul, mind, will, emotions, that sinned, only that kind of nature could bear the punishment. God could not pour out His wrath on an ox or a lamb or even an angel to satisfy His justice. It must be on a man who is exactly as we are. But then the benefits of that would be flowing back to us. And the benefits would come from Christ. And there is a living connection between us and Christ. We are one with Him. We are engrafted into Him. We are part of the same family, engrafted into the family tree, so to speak. We're one with Jesus, and therefore all the blessings that He earned flow to us. We are organically one with Jesus. That in the first place. He had to be like his brethren so that he would be one with them. Second, he had to live their life. He had to live their life. He had to live with pain and sorrow and hardship. He had to live in a family with father and mother, brothers and sisters, all of whom were sinners who sinned against him. He had to understand what that means to be sinned against by his own family and his friends. Jesus had to know what it meant to be hungry, to be tired, to cry, to get sick. He had to understand that. He had to live in a world that abounded in fighting, ridicule, Enmity, sickness, death, oppression. He had to live in that. He had to feel that in order to experience it, that he might be merciful from experience. That's true, isn't it? That the more you have experienced suffering the more you can sympathize with those who are suffering. I've never had cancer. When someone has cancer, I can feel sorry for them. can bring the Word of God to them. But someone who has had cancer experienced it. They they can have a sympathy of experience when they see in the bulletin, so-and-so was diagnosed with cancer. I've never lost a wife or child. But those of you who have, you can sympathize in ways that I can't. Because you've experienced it. Those who have gone through back surgery can, can sympathize with others who have, are going through it. That's the nature of experience. It makes us able to sympathize. Jesus had to be like unto his brethren, live through their life so that he could be merciful out of his own experience. That's part of God's preparation for him and he was like unto us even to the point of suffering and temptation verse 18 for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted he is able to help those that are tempted It shows how close Jesus came to us. He did not live in kind of a a bubble that he could just kind of go through life and nothing touched him. No, He was so much like us that He, was, he suffered being tempted. And, and right away in the Gospels, you children remember that, how Jesus was, went out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and He didn't eat a thing for 40 days and 40 nights. He had no one to, to comfort Him, no one to even greet Him or be, be cheerful to Him, to encourage Him, no one. The only thing He heard was Satan's taunting words if thou be the Christ if thou be the Son of God this was not painless Jesus suffered if you went without food for 40 days you would suffer Jesus suffered and he suffered being tempted it's hard for us to understand we know that as the Son of God, he could not sin. And yet it says he suffered being tempted. His, his flesh could view the temptation that Satan set before him, and he had to fight it off. Not, not that his flesh was attracted to it, because that's sinful. He was never attracted to sin, and yet we have to take it as it says he suffered. In temptation he suffered not only was this true in all of his life that he suffered but he suffered in the way of temptation he lived with mocking he lived with people that contradicted him that falsely accused him later on he was tried as a criminal and condemned as a criminal he was whipped he was nailed to the cross And all the time that that's going on, Satan is taunting him. You don't have to go this way. There is an easier way. You don't have to go the way of suffering. You don't have to. That's that's not the right way. Satan even used Jesus' own family and those around him, his disciples, to try to tempt him not to go the way of obedience As Jesus was talking about the fact that he had to suffer and die, one of his own disciples said, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not happen unto thee. You you don't have to suffer and die. And that, of course, is the hardest kind of temptation. When your friend says, You don't have to do that, you don't have to go to church, you don't have to obey your parents. When your friend says that to you. And then you know that going the way of obedience will cause suffering. Jesus suffered. And therefore, Jesus was prepared in every way to be our merciful and faithful high priest. He became like one of us, even to that point that he suffered being tempted. And you know, those temptations were in many ways more difficult for Jesus than for us. For one thing, he was perfect. Sin bothered him to the core. Sin doesn't bother us so much. Whenever a temptation comes, there's there's a part of us that is attracted to to the temptation Jesus didn't have an attraction to it sin was troubling to him he hated sin with all of his being in addition to that he had the power to change everything he didn't have to suffer he could have spoken the word and given himself food he could have spoken the word and given himself a nice bed to rest at night he didn't have to suffer but he did suffering under temptation was preparation the blessing for us the blessing for us is that we have him as our faithful high priest we do he has made reconciliation Reconciliation is the word used here and that's something beautiful about that because it means we're reconciled to God. He did that. He accomplished it. He covered our sins. We know that Jesus did in fact become one with us. Took on our nature so that he could make that kind of sacrifice. It was a perfect sacrifice for sins. Later on the, the book of Hebrews will say it's a once for all never had to be done again it's a once for all sacrifice for sin he covers us with his blood our debt is paid because jesus was perfect he was obedient he was faithful to his father's will we are redeemed body and soul and the proof of it jesus said on the cross it is finished I have finished my Father's will. I have made the sacrifice. The payment has been made. And God then raised Jesus from the dead. That's part of the children's program too. God raising Jesus from the dead. Proving that Jesus accomplished it all. This was God's seal of approval on the work of Jesus. Suffering is that God raised Him from the dead. We are redeemed, body and soul. And we know our salvation is complete. So that, first of all, is the blessing we have. The certainty of our finished salvation. But there's more. Because he continues now as our merciful and faithful high priest. He does. And especially verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered... He is able to succor them that are tempted. I said the word succor means help, and that's true, in English. But the meaning of that word in the original Greek is even far more beautiful. Because literally the word succor means to run to one's cry. To run to one's cry. A mother who hears the shriek of her child outside runs to help. A father who receives a phone call at night from a distressed child runs to help. That's the idea. When we are tempted, and there are many different kinds of temptations, sickness, Physical affliction, persecution, and death. Satan works hard to put wrong ideas into our mind. To tempt us to rebel against God. To tempt us not to walk the way of obedience. Go the easy way. Go the way everybody else is going. And then we have our own sinful flesh to deal with. We struggle. We fight. We have a new man in Jesus Christ, a new life that hates sin, that knows that God loves us and that we must not rebel against Him. So we fight against it. But the temptations can be so great that we think, I can't deal with it. I can't overcome this. And so we cry out, We cry out to our merciful and faithful high priest for help. And he runs to our cry. He doesn't leave us in our misery. He runs to our cry. He is able to help us. That word able isn't just, yes, he has the ability. He's powerful, that's literally. He is powerful to help us. Powerful. Think about why that's true. Why you'd never have to doubt this. Jesus is powerful. First of all, look at who Jesus is. He's the mighty one. He has overcome sin and death and the devil himself. He is enthroned upon The throne in heaven, he has all power given to him. And not only that, but think of his position there in heaven. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is the mediator. He has the ear of the Father constantly. And whenever his children cry out to him, Jesus can turn to his Father and say, Father, my people, they need this. I've earned it for them in the cross the grace that they need, the love that they need, the strength that they need. I've earned that. Give them that. He is able to help us. But now that's just looking at it from an objective point of view, his power and his position. But now think of it subjectively within the heart of Jesus. He knows what we are going through he was here in this earth we may never say Jesus does not understand we may never say that we may never say he never had to face this situation he never had to fight this kind of a great temptation he knows he understands suffering he understands death he understands all of the temptations of this life. He does. He knows what it's like to be tempted every day to forsake the way of obedience. He knows what it's like to be tempted to give up your Christian principles and live as the world. He knows what it's like to think, to be tempted to be tempted to think God's way is too hard for me it is not fair that I have to go this way this doesn't seem right that I have to suffer this way he understands those temptations therefore when we cry for help he runs and he understands and he knows exactly what we need no matter what trial, no matter what temptation. He never approves of sin, of course not, but he has mercy. He has pity, and he lifts us up by his almighty power. That is our merciful and faithful high priest. Thank God for this unspeakable gift of having this kind of a high priest merciful faithful amen father in heaven we bow before thee with gratitude thanking thee for the wonder of salvation in jesus christ that we have such a glorious salvation which is not merely on the cross though there is the source But it's that we have continued saving work by our beloved Savior Jesus, who does so in great love and in great compassion for his people. We thank thee for him, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.